0: Hi guys and welcome back to the YBF podcast. It's your girl Natasha and I'm back with another special guest but this is like not your typical special guest. This is actually our first political guests that we've had on the YBF podcast. And I am just so honored that he took time out of his extremely busy schedule, trying to, um, you know, beat the haters and beat the people that need to be beat, that are in a position that do not need to be in a position. He took time out to come and talk to us, this audience, about his position, why he's running for United States Senate in South Carolina. And there's so much to know about this amazing person. I cannot cannot wait for you guys to get to know him and for us to hear what he stands for. So please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Jamie Harrison. Hello. Thank you, Natasha, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, I'm great now.
1: <laughs> good, good, hopefully you're staying safe
0: yes yes i'm in new jersey so we're not fully open back up yet so it's still quarantine time for me what about you
1: yeah here in south carolina we're starting to see spikes we've had uh the past two weeks the highest two weeks uh, on record in terms of the coronavirus but at the same time you know we have folks out in the streets uh doing the protests, and I, i'm just but I'm very, very concerned, particularly because this virus in South Carolina has disproportionately impacted the African American community. Right. And so, uh, you know, with the protests, we're just, it's its needed, but at the same time, we, we got to understand dangerous. that, yes, that coronavirus, she is still around and, and yes. we, we can't, can't lose sight of that.
0: Lerona is still here. So yeah. before we get into the protests, like you mentioned, i would like for you to tell us why you are your background your passions what led to you to run for united states senate and you are by the way attempting to unseat the incumbent senator lindsey graham um, and this is i don't know if you all, how much politics you guys know but this is an uphill battle but mr harrison is killing it right now and making it an actual possibility so please tell us why you're even going through all of this drama to make this happen.
1: Yeah, I think the best way to, to sum up why I'm doing this is understand. So sort of where I come from. Yeah. So I grew up here in South Carolina in, in a town called Orangeburg, where if folks are familiar with South Carolina State University, and Claflin University, uh, Orangeburg is a home of those two universities, a town of about 15,000 people in the city limits. Um, I was raised by a single mom. My mom was 16 when she had me, uh, and then we stayed with my grandparents and I stayed with them for most of my life. Uh, my grandmother had an eighth grade education, my grandfather had a fourth eight grade education, they did construction and, and uh, worked in the textile industry. They didn't have a whole lot, um, but what they lacked in terms of economic and education backgrounds, they made up for in terms of their values. Uh, They taught me the value of working hard and at the same time, giving back and helping other people. So I was the first in my family to go to college and I went to Yale University. Uh, Then I came back home and taught ninth grade social studies at my alma mater, Orangeburg Wilkinson High. Uh, Went to Washington, DC, worked at a nonprofit to help low-income kids get into college so that they could get the same thing that I got. Uh, And then I started working on Capitol Hill for Jim Clyburn. I got my law degree from Georgetown, uh, and then I met my wife, and then came, we came back to South Carolina in 2012. So when I think back to my life, uh, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been blessed. And my life is emblematic of the American dream, that regardless of how you start, it's about it's about where you can go in this country when you get the right type of opportunities. Right. But what I'm trying to do and why I'm running this race for the United States Senate is to make sure that my life story is not some anomaly, something that only happens one every 50,000 kids. I wanna make sure that all the boys and girls who are growing up today can get the opportunity to do what they wanna do and be who they wanna be. And in order to do that, we gotta have the right type of leadership, a leadership that gives a damn about those people, right? That will fight for, for those folks and not just a select few. Uh, and that's the, that's not the type of leadership we have here in South Carolina. There's so many problems and so many issues, and I'm sure we'll get into them. Um, and and that's the reason why I decided to step up because it's so important to do that because we got to give people a fighting chance, a fighting chance to be better and do better for themselves, their families and their communities.
0: And you're officially the democratic nominee you ran unopposed in the democratic primary, but you are on the ballot full-blown for this coming November. What scares me about this is the voter suppression situation. And I understand, well, we all know what happened in Georgia when it came to Stacey Abrams, governor. We know what's happening around the country, to be honest, when it comes to voter suppression. South Carolina in particular, um, I was reading, has had its own set of challenges. And I wanted to know, what do you feel do you feel confident that that this will be a fair election one and once you are elected what will you be doing to make sure all the voter suppression attempts that are happening right now are addressed and rectified and not to happen ever again
1: yeah you know it wasn't just in georgia the georgia and south carolina had their primaries on the same night i think georgia had more much more issues, but we had some issues here in South Carolina right. as well yeah. uh, with extremely long lines. You had senior citizens waiting up until our polls close at 7 o'clock. People were still in line at 1130. Right. I'm not one of those people who says, oh, look at those long lines. That's such a good thing. No, that's that, that says that something's wrong.
0: Something's wrong it, right?
1: it is 2020. We got enough technology where it should not have to take people forever and a day in order to vote. Uh, if we don't have enough voting machines, well, hell, buy some new voting machines. We got to do much, much better because by having people stand in those lines for so long, that is akin to voter suppression in and of itself because, in essence, you are telling folks that you are not, your vote is not valuable enough, that we're going to do the things that need to be done to allow you to vote and do it in a quick and, and, and uh, efficient fashion. Um, We also had a problem with them consolidating precincts at the very last minute, putting precincts that are 15 miles apart and say, "Okay, we're going to consolidate them in one precinct. So that means now somebody got to drive 15 miles or 15 miles to get to to, uh, an opportunity to go vote. Well, if you got multiple kids, you got two jobs and you're trying to do this and that, you want to go in, vote in 15 minutes and get out so you can do all the other things that you have to do you know, there's enough, enough is enough with all of this. And we know it it really, a lot of it started back again, when the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And then you saw a huge escalation in these suppressive uh, tactics. One of the things that I wanna do, um, so let's talk about the current and then the future. In terms of the current, we're working with Stacey Abrams Group and our state party and the National Democratic National Committee on doing voter protection in South Carolina now. We're going to have lawyers on the ground in every county in South Carolina ready, willing, and able to address any of these issues as they come up, from closing precincts uh, to machines that don't work, to to put pressure on the local elected officials not to allow these things to happen. And we're going to ask uh, questions proactively instead of just waiting to react to these situations. Now, what happens once I become the United States Senator? One of the things I want to do is stiffen the penalties, the criminal penalties for anybody, including secretaries of state, mm-hmm. that, that knowingly go in and try to suppress the vote. That's by purging thousands, hundreds of thousands of voters that, that is uh, consolidating precincts and not giving notice. You will go to jail under legislation that I will offer if you are found to normally be doing these types of things. I believe that the greatest right that we have as American citizens is our right to vote. And that right should not be abridged by anybody because you know, you should, even if you're not voting for me or voting for the people who I support, you should still have that right in order right. to do it. And right. nobody should uh, be able to encumber that. And so uh, we we got to be proactive and let people know that there's zero tolerance for allowing these type of things to continue.
0: Right. And one question I did have from someone who is, well, almost a South Carolina native, they've been there for decades now. What she wanted to know was, what do you plan to, and you kind of touched on the Voting Rights Act, but what do you plan to do specifically about the Voting Rights Act pre-clearance reinstated which would stop all the laws to begin with um, that are putting that are being put in these states that are keeping people of color to be honest from voting
1: we have to get the Voting Rights Act uh, and those provisions passed again in Congress and I think we can do it we get Joe Biden in the White House we take back the control of the United States Senate send folks like Lindsey Graham home and we'll be able to do that because the House has already taken a lot of actions starting with hr1 to do a lot of work in that space and the one thing i would tell democrats again if we ever are fortunate enough to get uh the the control back to the uh 60 votes in the senate we need to take massive actions to open up voting in this country so that folks can go freely i would love to see i would love to see where we have automatic voter registration you turn 18 you're automatically registered to vote because that's important
0: yep yep Um, And so what I wanted to ask you about are issues that affect specifically millennials um, and specifically millennials of color and specifically black women millennials as well. Um, (laughs) One of the things that um, I know affects many millennials that I haven't yet seen you talk much about, and it might be because you haven't been asked and that's why we're here, the idea of you you were once a social studies teacher a high school teacher correct what yes. how do you reconcile or reconcile what we teach children about higher education and the importance of higher education with the cost of it the student loan repayment and all the things that come after that that they may not know yet but we as millennials are very well aware of how how much it was drilled into our heads that we have to go to college but now that we're out of college and graduated it's like Wow, did we actually put ourselves back a little bit by having to repay all of these loans, um, having to, you know, figure out what type of job can I have to afford that? Was it worth it? And what I want to know from People that are in Congress, because those, those people actually have a lot more impact on this issue than people think What can you do to help this gap of it's a very important thing to do, to go have higher education and to go to college and to even do higher, even higher education, professional school, things like that. How do you reconcile that with how much money we're now making in 2020, 2021 to be able to afford that payback? Should we even be paying back Should Should the prices of college and schools be lower? What can we do to fix this gap? between the importance yep. of higher education and how we repay it. So I think
1: my generation probably was the first generation to really begin to feel the higher cost of college tuition and, and, and graduate school. So when I graduated from law school, I graduated with $160,000 worth of student oh, loan I mean. debt. Mm. Yes, so, and then I married a woman who had $90,000 of student loan debt. So together, our household has $250,000 of debt. In South Carolina, that's a really nice house. Um, <laughs> and so I remember I graduated, and six months afterwards, Sal and Mae was knocking on my door Jamie, where's my $1,000 check for your loan repeat? Right? Uh, regardless of what your job right. is and this they want their is, money. So, yeah, it's a lot of money. And so I've spent a lot of my career working on uh, college access for young people. Um, I worked at uh, College Summit, which is a nonprofit that and now is called Peer Ford. That helps low-income kids become, and many of them, first-generation, go to college, and and taught them about the process of navigating that college application process, um, and we taught them uh, the you know the importance between grants and loans and what that meant, and you know uh, the subsidized loan as a as it relates to an unsubsidized loan right. in terms of the interest and all that. Um, we got to do a better job, particularly for first-generation college kids, of training and explaining that to them and their families so that initially they're making the best decisions as they go through this process. Right. Because if you have parents who've never gone to college and if nobody in your community has ever gone to college, how in the world do you learn have? the yeah. stuff? How do you know the stuff until it's too late when you already got this mountain of student loan debt and, and you can't, and you really can't get through it, right? We also know that the the median student loan debt for HBC students, HBCU students, is 32 percent higher than non-HBCU students. So this lo- the student debt loan problem is very it's it's big for young people in general, but specifically for young Black folks. Um, so so. Uh, there's a few things we got to address the root cause of this why is the cost of tuition why is the cost of college uh, rising at such an astronomical pace who's,
0: uh, that, who's profiting
1: from that exactly who's profiting from that and why is that the case and what can we do in order to stop that that's that's number one because i know a lot of people are saying well let's just waive all the student loans well i I wanna make sure that we can help folks because this burden is so big, it is impacting decisions that young people are making in their lives, when to leave their house, what types of jobs to get, uh, when to get married, when to have kids, right? And all of those things were kicking down the road because you, are, you have Sally Mae, that you, your first dependent is Sally Mae because she's asking for her money, right? So we understand that that's happening but we got to tackle the root cause of this in addition to dealing with the here and now with the massive debt that young people are, are, are have riding on their backs right now. Um, and so there are a number of proposals that, that many people from Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, a number of folks have offered to curb this. I, I agree that we need to figure out how we address that, but I also think we have to do something in our high schools to allow kids to, to, to know that they don't just, college is an opportunity and you can go down that path, but mm-hmm. in order to, live, to to develop a, mem- uh, a living wage, you don't, that is not the only option that you have.
0: Exactly. I
1: want to uh, create a system where we are allowing high schools um, to also uh, incorporate in their curriculum where kids can graduate from high school and also carry with them technical trainings so that they can become a plumber right out of high school. school. Or become an electrician, yes. They can get a trade right out of high school so they don't have to make a decision to go uh, to a four-year college if that's not where they want to. Um, So there's a lot there, but I I, I think I will be one of the very few senators who will understand um, uh, student loan debt on a personal level. Uh, and, and how it is right. uh, like putting handcuffs up on us in terms of holding yeah. us back from how we how yeah. we can be prosperous and, and right. engage in in our society
0: I totally agree people are my my readers are gonna love this explanation from you <laughs> um, so about the protest uh, we touched yeah. on at the very beginning about what's going on um, and I noticed that you did write, you wrote an op-ed called, How Do I Tell My Black Sons That This Could Be Them? When it was written, I think it was around June 6th, that was kind of like at the pinnacle of when things were getting extremely heated. It was more than just peaceful protests, Mm -hmm. but there were still peaceful protests. There was a lot going on. Things kind of took a turn for a more serious, more, a, a much stronger position that Black Lives Matter and people that were just fed up had. Yep. Um, what's changed for you? I know for me, every day, every day I wake up feeling different. I, I'm either angry, <laughs> disappointed, um, hopeless, hopeful, and then angry again because somebody else got shot. You know, like it's always. Some, I'm constantly changing daily. What do you feel today? And I also want to thank you for pointing out what you said in the in the article was you don't when you log into the news you don't see riots you don't see criminal activity you don't see chaos you see pain and anger and i appreciate that because people don't always address the why they're just addressing what they see and how people are reacting versus being upset about what got them there in the first place so i appreciate you yeah. putting that out how do you feel today though i mean just two weeks later things are drastically different to me how do you feel yeah yeah, you
1: know, I, I too have had that roller coaster of emotion. Right. Uh, it, I mean, every day is something different. I turn on the TV, I open up the newspaper. I, 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 you know, I'm looking at Twitter and something else happens, you know, this weekend, weekend, the you know, situation in Atlanta. I kind mean, right. it, it's, it is. Um, it's hard and yeah. it's painful and I'm tired. And I think that the constant in all of it is I'm tired. I'm really, really tired because the weight of all this stuff is so, it's so much. I mean, the emotional weight uh, of of the situation. Um, And, you know, it, it shouldn't have to be that heavy just to be who we are. Just to live. Just to live. It should not have to be that heavy, but, I am hopeful. I am very, you know, I am hopeful because when I look at the protests and when I look at people and now companies standing up and saying things when before in these situations they were silent, uh, it says that something's changing here. It might not be at the rate yet that I want, but I see that something is moving and something is changing and that is giving me hope. That things will get better and that this won't be one of those situations where just, you know, after it, you know, nobody's covering the protests anymore and nobody's talking about it anymore, people just move on and everything gets swept under the rug. Um, I do feel that something is different here. The the, looking at the protests, the protests even look different in terms of the people. And the one thing I always tell folks is racism is not a black problem. Right. It is not a black problem. It is an all of us problem right. that we all have to carry that weight. And black right. folks in the black community shouldn't have to carry that weight by ourselves. Um, and and so you know, it's good to see allies stepping in and you know and saying, you know what, that ain't right, uh, and and speaking up about it because that's the important component. That's how we change these things structurally and forever. Because I want to get to a point where this is just a chapter in a history book that my boys have to read. Right. They're five in one, right? Uh, we got to the point where all of my life, adult life here in South Carolina, I saw a Confederate flag either fly over the dome or right there on the stadiums. Right. And it's no longer there. And I'm proud that my sons won't have to see that as they grow up, right? I want this to become that way for them, where, where they also, don't have to worry about being stopped by a police officer and wondering whether or not they're going to get shot, hmm. right? Uh, I, that that is that is what I am, and that's why I'm fighting with everything I possibly can to make that sure that the our sons and daughters across this country get that opportunity. Right. Uh, you know, our forefathers and foremothers, foremothers fought for that as well. They fought to make sure that we didn't have to sit at the back of the bus. And those are things that we don't have to worry about now. uh, But there's still so much more that we have to do. And I think this is now our mission as our generations, my generation and younger, it is our mission to make sure that these younger generations don't have to carry this weight that we've been carrying. It's been generational pain passed from generation to generation, but it's time for us to heal that pain. It's time for it to stop, and we've got to stop it right now.
0: And one of the pieces of action that BLM Black Lives Matter is calling for is defunding the police. And we can talk all day about how we want change, but actually putting it into action, not just words of diversity and words of, you know, statements from CEOs. We want to actually see you hire Black people. We want to see you actually train to specifically maybe uh, deal with black people. You know, I don't know what it's going to take, but apparently not everybody knows how to deal with black people. Apparently we're very different than the rest of the human race. I don't know, but maybe sometimes there needs to be some inherent bias training. There needs to be specifics done in order to make these changes happen. And one of the, I agree. one of the specifics pointed out by black lives matter was about defunding police. I know that you went on record on another, on another interview saying that, you know, that, that's, that may not be, how you necessarily want to handle this, but I think it's important everybody understands what that means. And yes. the LAPD has you know already stated that they will be defunding their police by 150 million dollars. So that means that they they already have over a billion dollars in their budget, that they were budget, I think 1.8 billion dollars for this past year. So there that's a lot of freaking money for one police department. So the mayor has decided to say, hey, we are going to defund by $150 million. Now we've seen Minnesota, um, I think the Minneapolis the Police Department is also looking to just completely reform what their police department looks like. How do you feel about that? Should we be defunding all police departments? Should we be re reforming all of them in some drastic way? Yeah,
1: listen, I, you know, it, it's very, very clear to me that we have, been investing way too much in force and not enough in terms of serving our communities. And that is that is the ty- types of changes and reforms that I would love to see in our police force. One the first of all, we need to demilitarize our police force. There is no reason, you know, you watch these you watch the protests and you see police forces looking like a junior army, right? Yeah. They, the the mission of the army and the mission of the police force are two different things in the army you're supposed to engage in war fight kill people and do whatever you know that's what what happens in terms of part of the portfolio of army and the military in general police is supposed to protect and serve protect and serve what does that why do you need a Humvee in order to protect and serve why do you need a bazooka or grenade launchers to protect and serve when these are your fellow citizens that you are supposedly interacting with. There's no need for us to look like we want to have uh, that type of friction or be some type of military, domestic military force. That's the wrong look. And we need to not appropriate dollars for those types of actions. I would better, that money would be better served Getting some social workers that are working within um, uh, working within police departments to work on on some of these issues to help right. rebuild and not rebuild but build trust <laughs> right. because in some communities there is no trust, so there's right. no trust to rebuild, but to to build trust between these communities and uh and, and the law enforcement. You know, right. we, we got the unqualified immunity. I, I am a big proponent of that. And, and I know Cory Booker has been leading the charge on that. It's also incorporated in the House bill as well. Um, uh, you know, the training for implicit bias, we need to root out. And, and this is where the police unions need to step up. They need to root out the bad apples. They know who the bad apples are. Right. It's, it, you cannot tell me that if you're in an organization, you don't know the bad people in your organization. You right. got to root them out. You got to, you got to, and there needs to be that database so that if you have, uh, you have, infringe upon the rights of somebody in one community, you can't move. If you're in South Carolina, you can't move to New York and try to start a whole, whole, whole new. There needs to be a database so that folks in the community understand the backgrounds of the folks who are protecting and serving them. Which is like
0: crazy to me. I didn't know that they could just start anew at another place without. Without being known, where did they come from? Like these are, I can't get a job without somebody questioning my last employer. So, amen to that. <laughs> I mean, amen to that. True. So,
1: we need a national, uh, uh, a national standard for for force. holes need to be outlawed and banned completely. Now, it's one thing if you're fighting for your life. That's that, That's another thing. You got to do what you got to do to fight for your life. And I'm not saying it's, but. That should not be the standard practice that you give somebody a chokehold or you put a knee on the back of somebody's neck. Uh, you know, We got to change these things. And right. even in the criminal justice system, we got to end cash bail. We need to end the private prisons. We, the, private prisons are almost like modern day slavery. People are benefiting financially from the imprisonment of other folks. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much that we really need to do right now. And I think this is our opportunity to do it. Our folks can't just give lip service. You know, I know the Republicans are now drafting something or whatever so that they can feel good, but they cannot give lip service. And this is what we need folks to do. Hold people accountable. Not just for what their words say, because the hopes and prayers and all that. Listen, I'm a very spiritual guy. Mm -hmm. I pray a lot. Mm -hmm. And I believe in hope. But Mm -hmm. I also know the good book says faith without works is dead. And you've got to have the work as well. And, and we've got to make sure uh, that the work is being done. Where's the legislation? Where's the legislation? And what does that, the details look like in that legislation?
0: Well, the president has apparently done an executive order in regards to police reform, but we all know. And that was, that was done yesterday. We all know it's, not, it's nowhere near what Black Lives Matter asked for, what the people in general have asked for. So it's just an ongoing fight. Um, And switching gears a little bit, something else that our, I know it's very close to me, I'm very passionate about, and my readers are very passionate about, are the issues surrounding small business, small business help, the importance of small businesses. And it does feel like people, for some reason, don't talk much about this. I was really excited when a couple of the presidential candidates were very focused on this, but it doesn't seem like many were. And I'm hoping that someone like you, especially in a place like South Carolina, can, can maybe you know take a look at this and make sure it's a priority. Um, black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America and have been for five years straight. But yet, argue, I don't even wanna say arguably because I can attest to this firsthand, we are the ones that are most discriminated against when it comes to getting loans, when it comes to getting even grants, when it comes to getting access to resources, The Small Business Administration is a very tricky situation when you're trying to apply for small business loans and you're judged on certain things that other people are not judged on. It may be implicit bias. It may be outright bias. I don't know. What can we do to address this? What will you do as Senator Harrison to address this?
1: Well, you know, we saw this problem, particularly right now with the COVID situation. Um, and and the distribution of money through the PPP program, right. um, I am told that that about 95% of African American businesses were shut out of the program, getting proceeds or funding from the PPP program. That's outrageous. That is outrageous, and we can't tolerate that. And part of the reason why is because you know they they distributed most of the funds to these standard banks. And these are the same banks that don't give loans to African-American businesses. Right. Um, And and so going into this, we should have known better and, and understood better and have a better understanding of the dynamics. How do we make sure that all businesses and specifically small black businesses, black owned businesses are getting their fair share of the the revenue so that they can be maintained and stay and stay open. You know, so many, and I know how the situation's gonna happen. So many of the black barbershops and beauticians and small you know, small stores, neighborhood stores and all won't reopen after uh, COVID is done.
0: Because and they it's because they don't because have they, payroll, they don't have traditional things that, that are being asked for.
1: That's exactly right, and they didn't get a lifeline that these other businesses were able to get. Um, Even childcare centers, you you know, there are many childcare centers, particularly uh, in African-American communities. I think here in South Carolina, over a thousand childcare centers still are closed. And we know how important those little neighborhood daycares are because if they aren't open, where do people uh, send their kids, right? How can they go to work? work so work. that means people now have to stay home in order to take care of kids because it's the neighborhood childcare center, isn't it? Um, I wanna make sure that we are doing things uh, to build up small business in the black communities. One of the ideas that we are working on right now, um, and we will be rolling out very soon is, that we have this initiative about how we rebuild and revitalize rural communities. And here in south carolina rule is also very black uh, many yeah. of our small rural counties are, are majority black counties um so we're working on uh this thing about creating a center of excellence at historically black colleges and universities and making them incubators for small businesses mm-hmm. and specifically small businesses for people of color, almost becoming, you know, you think about the role that McKinsey plays for some of these larger corporations or some of these groups where they can go and lobby for funds for, for these businesses. We are, in in essence, empowering the students, graduate students and professors on, on historically Black colleges and universities to play that role for small businesses in these Black communities. Got it. Um, and so that they can play that role and connect them with resources, uh, connect them with, with uh, larger corporations where they can get their needed revenues to do the expansions and the things that they would like to see in order to grow their businesses.
0: Love that. And how do you feel about universal basic income and the stimulus and another stimulus? I know that uh, Republicans are heavily against this. How do you feel yeah. about those?
1: Things. well in the heroes act they include another stem uh the heroes act which was passed by the house of representatives right. including an increased uh level of, of of stimulus for for the american people and i'm in total support of this 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 coronavirus is unprecedented in terms of the impact that it's had on the day-to-day lives of the American people, and particularly folks who were already struggling before this right. thing actually hit us, right. right? And we got two senators here in South Carolina who have already gone on record and said, over their dead bodies, exactly. right. they, dead bodies will they allow an extension of just a $600 benefit mm-hmm. to those people who were unemployed? Here in South Carolina, we've had over a half a million people who have filed for unemployment in the state right now. Right. And so we need senators who will fight for us and not fight against us. Right. And right now, we got a senator who is fighting against us. And so I am in full uh, support of, uh, and even making sure that there's a bonus for those folks who were working on the front lines uh, of, of this pandemic, right. who had to continue to work um, uh, uh, during this time and period uh, because it's a necessary thing we got to understand that our greatest asset is not just the corporations and the businesses that we have in our community. Our greatest asset are the people. Mm -hmm. And if the people go down, then all of it goes down. And that's why I'm focused on, on helping my people.
0: Right. I know we have to wrap soon, but I do have two really important questions to ask. One is about the housing crisis. So I know that, I don't know if you were paying attention to what's happening in New York, I don't blame you if you weren't, but in New York, there was just an article yesterday about how it's a huge tumble in rent prices and this heavy increase in empty empty units and you know I live here in the New York area and I'm just like, mm-hmm, it makes sense, you know everything was overpriced and we were outpriced to begin with. And I've noticed that also I read an article about excessively high housing costs um, cost thirty two percent of South Carolina households, including half of renters, to come up short in just meeting their basic needs. What are you doing to, or going to do, to address this issue that we know also disproportionately affects people that look like me and you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, right here in in South Carolina, in North Charleston, North Charleston has the highest eviction rates in the country. Uh, And that was prior to uh, the coronavirus. We had to, uh, many of us uh, weighed in in order to ask the state Supreme Court to put a stay on evicting people during this pandemic because they were trying to still evict folks. We uh, went at the, at the very start of the coronavirus. Um, you know, it's personal to me because I've I've been homeless before. Uh, my, my grandparents, when I lived with my grandparents, we lost, my grandparents had a mobile home. This guy defrauded them for it. they were making payments every month but he was taking the money and putting it in his pocket instead of sending it to the mortgage company and so for a few months we actually stayed on the couches of, of family and friends mm-hmm. um and, and at the same time my grandfather lost his job he got un, unemployed at the same time so I, when this situation happened i knew exactly how these families felt yeah. to lose your job and at the same time have your your rent your landlord tell you you know what you got to lose your home yeah. as well. And and uh it's a stressful, stressful situation. One of the things that I want to do is uh and we're looking into this, is how do we uh rebuild and reform HUD? I think uh HUD needs needs to be repurposed uh and and look at how how it rebuilds urban and rural communities. And so I'm looking at some legislation to do just that, to address the crisis of housing in this country. There are provisions in, in public housing which, which, which break apart families. So for instance, if you're not married, uh, and uh, you know, but you, you have a significant other and you have a kid, then you know the, the mom and the kid could stay in the household, but the boyfriend can't, yeah. right? I mean, there's so many things that are not productive in terms of keeping families together so that so that they can work together as a unit to break out of poverty. Nobody wants to be poor in this country. Right. And I want to say that again. Nobody wants to be poor, but we need to make sure that there's a safety net that catches people when they do fall down that catches them and allows them to get an opportunity to break back out of out of poverty and live the American dream. And so we need to make sure that the policies that we have, the programs that we have allow that to happen, that we don't break apart families, but we give people a second chance to rebuild their lives and pick themselves up so that their families can go on again, to go back to what I said earlier, to live the American dream.
0: And even to give a lot of millennials the first chance to try that yes. one of the groups that has not been able to buy homes at the same rate our parents and grandparents had because of all of this so that's appreciated yep. um, and, and we got and we and we got
1: rid of programs like you know there were programs one of the first programs that I I got uh, and how I bought my first home was through a pro- program I, I can't remember the name of the organization but it was a neighborhood organization that had a partnership with a commercial bank and uh I got instead of the the standard rate for the uh mortgage, I got like three and a half percent. Was it the FHA, and
0: F H S A, or something like that? Loan, something like that?
1: No, it wasn't FHA, but it was it was a, a nonprofit that was partnered with the federal government okay. to target communities uh where home ownership was not, you know, was, right. had not been, high right, right, um, right. But it allowed me to buy a condo in, in uh, when I was living in DC in order to do that. And, you know, I only had to put three and a half percent down They I had to go through this training to learn about what home ownership meant. Uh, yep. You know, uh, they looked at credit. You know? uh-huh. Yeah. and it, it gave me a whole lot of flexibility. Uh, and we need those type of programs again, particularly right. for millennials and, and the younger generations coming up, to give them that opportunity to experience home ownership because that's how you build wealth that yes. you can then pass on from generation
0: to generation. Exactly. Um, before we wrap, is there? I wanted to ask you what are the key differences between you and Senator Lindsey Graham? But we—it's become very clear and obvious. But what I do want want you to let the readers know and and listeners know, is how do we reach you? How do we keep up with you? One of the main issues that I hear from people that hate politics and don't wanna get involved is, oh, everything's great whenever they're campaigning and running, but once they're elected, then what? They never know how to, there's a disconnect. They never know how to reach that person. You you said actually on Bill Marshall, which I thought was hilarious, um, that Lindsey Graham hasn't done a town hall in two years back in South Carolina. That's, that's insane. I worked on Capitol Hill for two summers. I know how insane that is because usually congressmen go back every single weekend to campaign in some way, shape or form. So that's insane that he hasn't. What will you do differently? How are you staying in contact even now? And then once you're elected, what do you propose or what do you promise to do to make sure everyone keeps their eyes on you and it's connected to you yeah so i i am a firm believer my philosophy
1: in life is show not tell because politicians do a lot of talking and telling people what they believe i want to not only tell folks but i want to show them as well and so one of the things that we are doing on our campaign is is something that's unique many campaigns aren't doing it um i have created uh an initiative that is a community service initiative called harrison helps where I am in the community partnering with community organizations on the ground right now doing good work from Boys and Girls Clubs, Habitat for Humanity, ABLE, which works with folks in disability communities, Ronald McDonald House, neighborhood organizations who are doing good work to help people right now deal with the issues they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I put on a school supplies drive where we raised $7,000 in my hometown. We had 700 kids and parents showed up i had a mom come up to me and she said mr harrison thank you so much she said i prayed so much i didn't know how i was going to get these things for my kids but you helped me and that's important to me because people help me along the way and i want to make sure that folks know i'm not going to tell them you just wait until i get elected and then i can start helping no i want to help you right now what can i do with what i got right now in order to make your life better We even right now have a grant program set up. So if you are a community organization here in South Carolina and you are helping families deal with the coronavirus, you can apply for a $500 grant from our our Harrison Helps organization uh, in order to continue to do your work. So if folks want to be a part of of our effort, this movement that we're building to, to, to create a new South that is bold and inclusive and diverse. Well, New South, that is fighting for everybody and not just a select few. You can follow me on Twitter at Harrison Jamie. You can follow me on Instagram at Harrison Jamie. You can go to jamieharrison.com, sign up to volunteer or learn more about Harrison Helps and the things that we are doing in order to make South Carolina a better place for all of us and not just a select few. So I appreciate this opportunity to be on with you. you.
0: Um, And just so everyone realizes, yes, he is running for Senate in North, in South Carolina, but what you all have to understand is every Senator, every U.S. Senator affects all of us in all 50 states. They vote on, they vote on federal laws and federal policy that affects all of us. So it's in our best interest to have someone who you see how passionate he is now, who could speak passionately on the Senate floor as well for us. Okay, make that make that clear to y'all that it matters whether you live in South Carolina or not. But what also helps is obviously money and donations. You are, I mean, killing it when it comes to donations. But that doesn't mean you don't need more. Yeah, killing it. Just FYI, like that mean that matters, guys. Understand that he's basically one in one, almost one in one donation-wise with the incumbent who is making his money off of a couple of a couple of businesses, a couple people and you're people. So yep. how do we donate to your campaign to help?
1: You can go to jamieharrison.com. It's J A I M E Harrison.com, or you can go to act blue and you can make a donation there. And listen, a dollar, $5. It doesn't matter. All of it helps because it allows right. us to, to hire folks, uh, put people on the ground to put up uh um, uh, ads on black radio and in newspapers I saw your and ad here New Jersey
0: yesterday. I was shocked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, all of that's really important. But the thing that I really, really, really need, particularly for folks who are in South Carolina, but I say this for everybody, if you're not registered, get registered. Please do. Uh, and, and if you are registered, vote. And yeah. if you do vote, and when you do vote, take somebody with you. Take one or two of your girlfriends or boyfriends or your friends and just take them with you because it is so important. And and I can't under, under emphasize how important the voting process is. And I know people say, well, it doesn't matter. But we can't protest all of these things if we don't also go vote because voting is a, the crucial component in making our demands reality because how, how are police funded they're funded by politicians and how are politicians elected by people who vote how how do you get juries well juries are they pick juries based off of the voter registration law if you are not registered to vote you don't exercise your right you can never be on a jury you want to be on a jury you want to give that fairness you want to make sure juries look like us then you've got to make sure. sure that the voters look like us as well. Thank you,
0: connect. thank you so much. So everyone understands why this is so important. Get your ish together, go register to vote, donate to Jamie Harrison's campaign. Um, We'll be looking out for everything that you're doing. We like pettiness, so we hope that you'll come at the president with some Twitter fingers as well. You know, like do what you need to do to make sure everybody is on one accord about voting down the ticket, how it needs to be voted, all right? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. We definitely appreciate it. And good luck with everything.
1: Thank you so much. And you just kudos for doing what you're doing because it's so, so important to be a voice for, for all of our community and uh, particularly young people. So I, I appreciate that.
0: Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening. Bye. Take care. By the way, my, my aunt is um, Dr. Elsie Scott. And she definitely oh, wow. me in, in contact with you. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, well, give her my best. Is she still doing some stuff for um, the
0: um, She's not foundation? with the PGCF fund anymore. No, um, with the foundation anymore. But she definitely does her thing. Like she sits on a lot of boards. Yep. She's, you know, oh, everywhere. She's amazing.
1: Yeah. As you know, she is amazing. Yeah. I love Dr. Scott. She, yeah. I mean. She's, well give her my best when you talk to her. Oh,
0: me. I will. She speaks very highly of you and she was very willing to help me get in touch with your people.
1: So of course. Of course. Well, I, I would not be here without the, the work that she did. I mean, I was a I was a um um Black Caucus intern. Yeah, she um, called me. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, all all that I learned on the Hill was because it all started from that opportunity. Absolutely,
0: so, absolutely. Uh, I actually did CBC, I didn't do CBCF internship. I just did a regular internship, like just direct. Um, I'm from Louisiana, so I did it with Mary Landrew at the time. Yeah, yeah. And it was a lot. And I did it with Representative Rodney Alexander before that, who switched parties. Oh, yeah, in the yeah. room. Child, it was a lot, but I feel oh, you. The, Yes. Yeah. Well, listen,
1: I, I know <laughs> Landry, I know Senator Landry. I just talked to her actually about two weeks ago oh, nice, and Ryan. I rem- and I remember I went down to Louisiana and campaigned for with, with uh, Elijah Cummings and also um, uh, Jim Clyburn to campaign for Rodney Alexander. And then oh. have, he shortly after he won, he, he, uh, I, I was twice. so furious. I lost so my job mad. that
0: I was promised because he switched parties. Like, don't get me started. But yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Campbell.
1: We'll talk soon.
0: Okay, talk soon. Bye. Okay.
1: Bye. Guys.